0: The OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study.
1: Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash onscript.
0: Welcome back, onscript listeners. This is Matt Lynch, one of the co-hosts of the OnScript Podcast with Matt Bates and Drew Johnson. We are now at the beginning of our autumn season and in just a couple months we'll near the uh, 2 year anniversary of onscript which is really hard to believe Drew takes the helm in this episode and he interviews Aaron Heim it's a really fascinating discussion that i know you'll enjoy if onscript has benefited you in some small heartwarming way please consider a donation of just 5 dollars a month info for that can be found at onscript.study/donate If that's something that is not too much of a strain on you at this time. Okay, let's get on to the interview.
1: Well, hello there OnScript superfans. This is Drew Johnson from the King's College in New York City, and today we're going to talk a lot about metaphors. Now, I know when I just said the word metaphors, I could almost hear some of you rolling your eyes. After all, we often hear people say, or maybe we've said it ourselves, well, that's only a metaphor. But what do we mean by saying that? A new book on metaphors in the New Testament takes on that literal versus metaphorical dichotomy, claiming that it's a false dichotomy. Considering that Paul's use of the term righteousness, dikaiosune, itself is a metaphor, and so is redemption, and enslaved, which means that freedom itself is also a possible metaphor in Paul, then it seems like we might want to take another look at, at metaphors, even though they've been looked at time and time again by literary scholars. Well, today I'm talking with Dr. Erin Heim. She is the Assistant Professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary, and we're talking about her book, Adoption in Galatians and Romans, Contemporary Metaphor Theories and the Pauline-Huiothecia Metaphors, put out by Brill this year, 2017. According to her Denver Seminary's website, Dr. Haim earned a Ph.D. from the University of Otago, an M.A. from Denver Seminary, and a Bachelor's in Music from the University of Minnesota. Her doctoral thesis on the Pauline adoption metaphors was named an exceptional thesis in the Division of the Humanities at the University of Otago and became the book that we're talking about today. Dr. Haim regularly presents academic papers at professional conferences on biblical literature, hermeneutics and new testament backgrounds she speaks and writes on issues surrounding contemporary practices of adoption something to which we will certainly return in this interview and the need for responsible theological dialogue surrounding the adoption of children dr heim welcome to OnScript. thank you I want to begin by reading a few quotations from, uh, two of the quotations from Romans and Galatians of the four total in the New Testament uh, about adoption. And so these will be a little bit out of context, but to give us some background uh, for the book. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8.15, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption when we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, And to give that a little more context, Galatians 4, 4 through 6 says, "...but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hands, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a child, and if a child, then also an heir through God." Um, well, first off, uh, I just want you to kind of set us up for how you got into this maybe a little background of how you got into academics in the first place this weird sport we do um, <laughs> and then how did you get specifically in this topic of Pauline theology and adoption?
0: yeah that's a thanks for the question that's a great question and one that I actually really like to answer um. I did not grow up in a family where uh, people pursued higher education uh, for the most part until my generation of cousins or so. And um, I, when I uh, did my undergraduate degree, I wanted to be a music teacher. And I got married to a man who wanted to go to seminary. And so we moved out from Minnesota to Colorado. And he started seminary and I was teaching music and uh, I was so interested in all of the things that he was learning that I really wanted to go to seminary. So I enrolled the next year and um, I kind of set out to just support him in his ministry, but fell in love with the subject matter and uh, continued and graduated with a Master's of Arts and Biblical Studies and then went on to did my PhD. So, uh, I joke that I'm set out to be an educated pastor's wife and now I'm a really, really educated pastor's wife with a PhD who also teaches at a seminary. I I think
1: everybody is going to want to know who had the higher GPA out of seminary.
0: Oh, I did. (laughs) (laughs) My husband is a wonderful pastor. Um, He's much more interested in people than books though. So um, he's, and he's a good student, but he, he's a little less bookish than I am. And we balance each other really well because he's, um, he's great with people and I'm great with uh, helping him with sermon prep Hmm. when he does, so he doesn't have to go to the library quite so much. (laughs) And um, adoption specifically, this has been kind of a lifelong journey for me because I'm adopted. And so when I came to seminary and I, um, had the opportunity to study these passages in the original languages. And, uh, I wanted to know what it was that Paul was talking about when he said that we were adopted as sons. Um, I know the NAV translates that as children, but adoption as sons, um, because it seemed so ad- adoption is, is kind of like it, uh, Hildbrand Westra, uh, says that it's, you know, something that you can never run away from. And so that's been the truth for me. I can't, run away from my adoption and, uh, what better way to kind of explore that part of my identity than through scholarship. So, uh, that was the impetus for studying this, uh, these passages for my, my PhD and, uh, the impetus to keep thinking about them post post post-graduation.
1: Uh, and full disclosure, it was probably the thing that uh, piqued my interest about your book is, uh I grew up my brother my older brother and sister were adopted. I was the biological surprise, uh, and I myself uh, adopted my first two children, me and my wife, and then we had two mm-hmm. biological surprises delightfully um, and uh, and i I want to come back to why you corrected children to sons later because um, it has to do yeah. with kind of the back- <clears throat> excuse me that has to do with the background to uh, adoption in the Roman context. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, well, first, uh, I want to say that uh, the first part of your book is about metaphor. And for those of us that have dipped our toes into metaphor theory and then kind of quickly jumped out of the lake and (laughs) got onto the safer shores, um, I think you did a really good job as compelling reading, summarizing metaphor theory, kind of giving us the greatest hits of strengths and weaknesses, and and also giving us a a, a mildly, uh, not completely new construction, but a mildly new construction. You, You put a tool in the reader's hands that they can take Uh, The text. So I thought that was very helpful. Maybe you could just begin with um, what is a metaphor and um, what are some common misperceptions? So, in the introduction, I said people will say it's merely a metaphor versus uh, literal. Um, So, how do you define it and what do you do with those kind of misperceptions? Uh,
0: So, in the book, I I take Janet Martin Zoskis's definition because I think it's so helpful for defining. literary metaphors, especially. But she says that a metaphor is speaking of one thing in terms which are seen to be suggestive of another thing. Or maybe we can even paraphrase that down to speaking of one thing in terms of another thing. And, um, and I think one of the most common misperceptions of metaphor is that somehow they are of a second order of truth. And if something is really true, then it's literally true. And if something is just a little bit true, or maybe partially true, but mostly false, then it's metaphorically true. And I think that's um probably the most wrong-headed way of, of thinking about metaphors, simply because metaphors are inescapable. And Uh, What what I found most fascinating when I I was delving into this metaphor theory, and especially what's been going on in cognitive linguistics, is that um, our brains make meaning of things, cognitive linguists say, by simulating what's being read. So it turns out that thinking about something is not actually that different than experiencing it or doing it. And that might sound heady or technical but if you take a really simple example like benjamin bergen does in his book uh louder than words you know when you think about your keys and what direction they turn a lot of times you'll actually you know think about turning the key in your hand and thinking about which way the lock turns and um it turns out that that activates your motor system right and sometimes it activates your motor system so much that you actually do the action um the upshot for biblical studies is that metaphors are a sensate experience. They are, um, in some ways, a more direct experience of something than abstract languages. And so to say that a metaphor is somehow of a, a lesser order of truth, I think, misses how our brains actually make meaning of language. And so to say something is metaphorically true means that it's abs- I mean, that, that it's true. And your brain experiences the metaphor as if you were actually doing the thing.
1: Yeah. I think that's so important. I was going to ask you about the models and visual simulation. Um, because uh, you gave an example in, in the book, and I remember as I was reading it, it was doing the very thing that you were talking about, which is a weird sensation in and of itself. Uh, when you're talking about <laughs> liveliness and strength of a metaphor, use the example, and I'm not sure where you got it from, but uh, humor is a rubber sword. It allows you to make a point without drawing blood. Uh, and it was a perfect example of I, I was, like, painting the whole picture in my mind. Of course, it happens at a snap of a second. And trying mm-hmm. to figure out the relations. Uh, maybe you could tie that back into... Um, your discussion of vehicle, tenor, and frame. I know it it gets a bit technical here, but... uh... It
0: does get a little technical, and I I think the technical words don't have to scare us off. Um, So there's two kind of schools of metaphor thought in... um, the one with mental simulation and body simulation is cognitive linguistics. And um, so Janet martin Soskis, who uses these terms, vehicle, tenor, and frame, is more interested in the philosophy of language side of the discussion. And there is really a, a discernible turn within metaphor studies that happens um Kind of went with the third publication of the the publication of the third handbook on metaphor, uh, with Cambridge handbooks, and um, what Saskis is after though I think is still really helpful and it's something that cognitive linguists haven't picked up on quite as much, Uh, but that a vehicle and a tenor, um, the vehicle is the the term that we would identify as as the the metaphor in most cases. So like adoption is the vehicle in my book. And it's the same vehicle in all of the texts that I'm using. And that vehicle is the thinking of um, terms of one thing in the in the vehicle is the term suggestive of another. In the example, humor is a rubber sword. Uh, rubber sword is actually the model and you can think of it in your brain what a rubber sword would be like that it you know, that it's a weapon, but it's a weapon for practice. It doesn't get stuck and hurt you, etc. And although humor is a rubber sword, is a metaphor in total. Uh, rubber sword itself isn't a metaphor. It's an object out there in the real world that you can actually think of. Uh, in terms of the metaphor, humor is a rubber sword. It's a vehicle. It's the way that we can think about one thing, humor, in terms of another thing, the rubber sword. But we need the whole utterance together to get to the to get to any kind of meaning or implication complex, humor is a rubber sword. And from that whole utterance, we can draw all sorts of um, all sorts of inferences about humor. That it's a way of saying something poignant and true and corrective without being too cutting, or uh, a way of of poking fun that's not malicious, but maybe is a corrective, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, we need all three of those things working together: model, tenor, and vehicle. Uh, in a metaphorical utterance.
1: I just want to point out that you used two sword puns, (laughs) cutting and poking, and I just pointed that out.
0: Yes, yes, you did just point that out. Thank you. So one
1: one of my favorite things to do is to quote authors back to themselves. Uh, I I actually, I did read the whole book, but page two, you were laying down some hard truths there. So... Um, let me quote a little bit from page two. <laughs> you say, quote, Metaphors communicate truths that cannot be communicated in any other way. Metaphors are not entirely paraphrasable, and the resistance to literal paraphrase makes them well-suited for communicating profound theological truths. And then about 70 pages later, when you talk about indeterminacy, you, you say, well, they communicate truth, but they have ragged edges, right? That It's not all there and available. And this ties into your discussion of, uh, the intercourse and the implication uh, that somebody has to like, be, I, I, I don't want to use the word flippantly, but play with the metaphor a little bit uh, cognitively. Um, could you talk about how they communicate truth in a way that can't be done in any other way?
0: Yeah, I think what I'm really getting at is to say, um, just to say that a metaphor isn't prayer in the sense that like, adoption doesn't mean quite the same thing as, Um, seeing being born into a family. It doesn't mean the same thing as justification. It doesn't mean, and and I know that sounds really, um, simple but it's amazing when you look at the history of interpretation how often we we mix metaphors together or we use other metaphors to explain other metaphors etc kind of not sticking with the original metaphor and letting it have its own implications because adoption has a specific set of implications that isn't expressed in anything else and so we got to stick with it in order to understand what paul is saying so when i say that it can't be communicated any other way i think that's. I think that's a, kind of a feature of language in general, that terms aren't entirely um, able to be swapped out, but, um, but even more so with metaphor, the experience of one metaphor, because I think metaphor actually uh, gives us a whole experience of something, not just, a, not just kind of a flat meaning, but um, that experience isn't necessarily exactly the same as the experience of another metaphor or another utterance. Mm. So
1: you talk about the uh, the idea of metaphor creating intimacy and forming group identity. I had not ever heard that before, um, and so maybe you could talk about how that works, a, and then we can bleed over into how you think Paul is using that in the adoption metaphor.
0: Yeah, that's a great question and one that I've thought about a lot um, in writing the book. Uh, it makes you see things. Um, makes you see things in other areas of your life that I think are, are really good examples of this. So um, the one I use in the book, and I think is probably close and dear to my heart because I used to be a musician in a former life, is that uh, that my my band director always used to say when, when things weren't going well, well, you got to go spend more time in the woodshed, right? <laughs> you got to go spend more time in the woodshed. Well, we weren't obviously going to literally go out in the backyard and go into a woodshed. We all lived in uh, downtown Minneapolis, but uh, what he meant was, you need to go practice more because you sound, you know, this part sounds terrible. And uh, and what that did, more so than just communicating that we need to go practice, was that we were part of the in-group who was going to get to understand what it meant to go spend time in the woodshed. Like it was a way of dignifying the fact that we were all musicians and we were in this together uh, in addition to telling us what we needed to do. And if you had been a non-musician, you probably would have puzzled over what he meant by woodshed. Now I'm not going to claim that all metaphors work that way; Some are so mundane, like the you know stem of a glass or the trunk of a car or whatever, that they probably don't create group identity to a sense uh until they do so you know, I understand what a trunk of a car is, but if I were in the u k it'd be a boot or whatever so um so they create bonds between people who understand them, yes, and uh yeah, and and with uh, with Pauline theology, I think this is even more true because these metaphors are being applied to people themselves. They're being told how to think about themselves. They think th- think about themselves as adopted children, or as slaves of righteousness, or as um, I mean, any number of the New Testament examples. So, um, so I think that that creates a sameness of vision for the people in the community. They know that they all think of themselves this way, and they know that Paul thinks about them that way.
1: Yeah, and, and I think for anybody who is skeptical of your false dichotomy between metaphor and literal, um, I think it was that point in the book where it crossed the border. I think even the skeptical would go like, oh, okay, yes, metaphors are doing something much more um, than when I was maybe, uh, maybe I was uh, diminishing them a little bit in the way they were being used. Um, now, I'm going to quote you again. Maybe this is the last time. You say, uh, you cite that there's a trend, quote, to view metaphors as cognitive instruments capable of changing the structure and the shape of the person's thought, end quote. So there's a lot of people in cognitive linguistics, cognitive everything, talking about what changes the structure of our thought. I heard that, or I read that, and um, I instantly thought of Catherine Bell's work on ritual theory, Uh, where she talks about rituals um, as normal human practices, just like metaphors are normal human words, uh, mm-hmm. But they're strategically changed in order to for this new goal, in order to produce a new kind of person, a ritualized person. And uh, so I, I have a bold question for you, and and I haven't thought it through fully. I was waiting till this com- conversation. Um, but in, in some way, if rituals kind of ritualize the person and create a new type of person by strategically changing a normal practice, could could you say mm-hmm. uh, metaphors are trying to cognitively restructure somebody by taking normal human language uh, and metaphorizing it. I don't know what the verb would be here.
0: Oh, interesting. Uh, is there something like um, that
1: going on? And I'm, I'm hitting you with a brand new concept on a live interview, so I understand uh, the results are...
0: Well, on the one hand, I think that's exactly what what is happening in the New Testament that Paul is taking, or at least in the, in the adoption metaphors. Maybe I shouldn't say in the New Testament in generally, but that's exactly what he's doing. He's taking an a everyday concept, one that would have been familiar, and putting it into a new situation in order not just to communicate something about um, about his audience, but actually to change how they think about themselves, mm-hmm. change how they relate to each other, change how they relate to um, to God. Uh, and and I think there's a lot of overlap with with ritual theory in that regard. It is a um, it's a way of almost rehearsing identity mm. and putting on those metaphors. Um, yeah, I, Sally McFaig, um, who I wouldn't endorse in all respects, <laughs> but in this regard, uh, I think is right when she says that, you know, a revolution in one's thought is a revolution in one's world. Hmm. So I think I think that's exactly what's going on, that Paul's trying to revolutionize their thought.
1: Um, so I often learn through controversy, and I, I, the first time I met you was uh, a couple months ago now, I guess, at the Logos Conference in St. Andrews. <laughs> and uh, David Moffat—oh, maybe I should not name him. No, he's a great guy.
0: Uh, <laughs> he is a great and guy. a great
1: scholar as well. And yeah, uh,
0: absolutely. he gave a
1: paper on analogical reasoning and metaphor, and I'm, I'm very familiar with analogical reasoning from philosophy world. Mm. Um, and I remember you came up to him afterwards, and you certainly had strong words, and uh, and I was not able to follow the conversation entirely. Now that I've read your book, maybe I could guess what you would say, but uh, what what was the controversy for you? And I assume you wouldn't overthrow him, but you would want to make caveats about what he's saying.
0: No, and I actually I really enjoyed his paper. I think David, boy, if I can present papers like David Moffat and be that engaging and entertaining as a, as a person and a scholar, man, I feel like that's a that's a great thing to aspire True. to. I really yeah. enjoyed him, uh, and I think his paper, uh, his work on Jewish cosmology is is just excellent. I mean, I think he's exactly right that there is this um, that the author of Hebrews has a belief that there is a temple in heaven, and that. Um, that the temple on earth is an analogy for that, if I understood him correctly. And I've thought about his paper a lot since, uh, since I read it, since I heard him give it. And I think the one, um, the one thing that, that continues to kind of, uh, tug at me, if you will, is that he seems to, um, dismiss metaphorical interpretation of Hebrews entirely because of a certain kind of metaphorical interpretation of Hebrews that has gone on, namely that, um, That people see this as an existential, you know, metaphor for an existential experience, in to Christ's atonement, et cetera. And I think one of the ways, one of the things that I want to push him on, is to say that actually metaphors can, um, can signify or um, or create cognitive constructs for concrete, literal events, just as much as they do to uh, make abstract concepts more available. So his whole um, his whole argument is saying that this is a, a signification of a concrete literal event, and I must say, well, yeah, absolutely, it's a, it's a signification of a concrete literal event that Christ, you know, really did die and was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Um, but what I would say is, you know, even in saying that, he died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, uh, and so he is, and the author of Hebrews is thinking of that in terms of priestly language. Hmm. And if we take Soskis's definition, then that is thinking of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension in terms seems to be suggestive of a high priest. Hmm. So I think it's hard to say that that's somehow not metaphor. Yeah. It's just metaphor that picks out that concrete action. And um, and I'm sure he would say, well, that makes it an- analogical. And I and I understand that. But, um, but to my mind, I think, I think the biggest issue that I had with it is just it's the same issue that I have with uh, people when we have this conversation is that they they want to say that metaphor somehow is picking out an abstract thing and actually metaphors don't always do that. Hmm. They pick out concrete things yeah. and they signify concrete things.
1: Yeah, I think that nuance that you just made is is important and helps people understand why this discussion is so important is that we don't realize. I mean, even at the at the introduction, I pointed out what you point out: uh, redemption, salvation. Maybe even slavery and freedom themselves are all, all metaphors. Um, and just constantly checking ourselves to see when, when are we talking and thinking about one thing in terms of another doesn't diminish the conversation. It just makes us aware of what we're doing with language, right? Right. I, I think also this, this idea that metaphor is strategically reusing language to draw upon imagery, to basically, uh, basically uh, prick somebody's mind so that, that they have a model that they work through. It can be that, I should say. Um This also resists your critique uh, or, or it sets up for why you have to critique then approaches to the metaphor that are merely linguistic, just trying to take the parts you know what do these words mean, what would they have mean in their context, and then here's how the metaphor works is that is that correct?
0: yeah, yeah I think uh, I think background studies are are important because you have to know I always talk about historical context like it's a light, and um, authors ask. Uh, they ask when they when they give a metaphor it 's an invitation in some regard it 's an invitation to put something on and wear it almost, hmm. but if we don 't have the light of historical context um fleshing out that model it's almost like getting dressed in the dark Mm. we don't understand uh what it is that we have on so we need the background studies but we can't stop there because the meaning doesn't just come from the background it comes from the interplay of all of the pieces of the background and the other pieces of the context and so um so that's my yeah it's it's too flat of a reading if we if we just stick with background and we use that to say this is what the metaphor means Mm. because it's it's more holistic than that, um, both in terms of literary context and also just in terms of um, of levels of meaning. So cognitive meaning, but also I think affective content of a metaphor, et cetera.
1: So if if I hear you right, sorry, I'm a body guy. So I I want to say like so what we want to say is metaphors are fully embodied participation mm-hmm. devices. Um, That's right. And there's a great Confucian proverb that says something like, "Who is the man?" That uh, when somebody points at the moon, they stare at his finger, you know. And it's and if I feel like the the linguistic side is just dissecting the pointing arm, the finger, and it's trying to point us somewhere, right? Um, yeah. Sorry, these are my own riffs on w- what I think you're saying. Uh, okay, so let's talk about Paul's world and Huiothesia uh, and what this word might have meant. What, what would have the, been the models that might have been conjured up in people's minds? And you know, I'll, maybe you could address what you think the strength and the liveliness of these metaphors are in Galatians and Romans. Uh, so yeah. f- first, what's the, what's the background? What would people have thought when they heard the term? Uh,
0: I think it's impossible to get away from the fact that huiathesia in uh, Paul's day means adoption. Uh, there is a a whole host of linguistic evidence, or I mean, epigraphical evidence, um, literary sources, etc., that use this term unambiguously to connote adopted sonship and not just sonship more generally. I think um, James N. Scott's work is very clear on that, and um, and Michael Pepperd certainly has taken that um, and done wonderful things with it. So I think we have to reckon with the fact that that's what the word means. Now.
1: Can I what can I word? interject here for a second, just sure, to clarify? Sure. Uh in, in the book you address it's and it's adopted sonship, not adopted children. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. So, and I think, um, and I think, well, let's start with Greco-Roman adoption practices, and I, and for maybe the sake of clarity and time, I'll just kind of mush those two things together, uh, Greco-Roman practices, because the Greek practice of um, is kind of taken up and in, 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 um, slightly changed in the Roman period, but not. Not, too, not so much that they're, I think, very distinguishable. Actually, um, so in Greco-Roman adoption, uh, you don't adopt vulnerable children like we tend to think of adoption as doing. You adopt an adult male for um, for inheritance to carry on the family name, to carry on the um, the uh, family cult etc. and so uh adoption uh, Michael Peppard says is not to, you know, ensure the future of the son but the future of the father. And so um and so we have to we have to start there with the word unambiguously I think meaning that and I think it's almost inconceivable to think that even a Jew living in the Roman Empire right at this point wouldn't have been aware of the meaning of Huiothasia because emperors were adopted and there it was broadcast on coins and inscriptions and etc. That being said, Paul says that um in Romans 9 4, uh you know, they are Israelites to whom belongs the Huiothasia, the adoption. And if we look at the Septuagint and if we look at um, Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament, we see um, we don't see Huiothesia appear anywhere in the Septuagint, and I would argue that we don't see um, the same. We don't see a, a recognizable social construct of adoption either uh, in the Old Testament. Now I know there's debate about that, but we have to reckon with what then Paul is doing with calling this i think jewish sonship tradition where israel is god's son the um, davidic king is god's son angels are sometimes called sons of god etc what is he doing with that calling um calling it adoption and i think that is paul's own um own theological take if you will on that israelite sonship language in the old that is so prevalent through the old testament uh
1: and a quick aside um I'm sure you've heard it since you're adopted, and people have all kinds of interesting things to say to people who are adopted and adopting, um, that Jesus was adopted, right, uh, by his father. Uh, Hold on, I just saw her wince. You couldn't see this uh, at home. So so, so what do you make of that discussion in light of your discussion?
0: Um, Jesus is adopted by Joseph. Yeah, it's something you hear a lot. I think... I think we have to be really careful about conflating what we mean when we say that Jesus was raised as the son of Joseph, and certainly taken into that family, uh, with what the Roman adoption practice was uh, in practice, because um, because Paul, it, it has different connotations. So um, I wouldn't want to say that he somehow... Um, not part of that family. I think it's pretty clear that he's the son of Joseph, but, uh, should we be calling that adoption? Cause he's also still the son of God. Right. Um, and that's not how adoption worked in the ancient world. When you were the son of one father, you were no longer uh, legally the son of another father. And it seems to me that in the case of Jesus and Joseph, it's not a zero sum thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, the, the other issue, which you point out uh, quite regularly, and you, I think you just said, um, was that one of the primary goals of adoption was to ensure inheritance. Uh, we can think of that as Abraham and, um, and uh, Eliezer of Damascus. Uh, but uh, also that you said the cult, and just to clarify by the cult, you mean that, that your, your kid is going to keep on giving gifts to the right gods, right, on behalf right, of the family. Right,
0: right. Right, exactly. Right
1: so there's like immediate concerns about whatever happens after you're dead uh in the religious uh, realm as well um yeah and so if if the if if the model of adoption might be something like it's it's to secure inheritance progeny and uh cult sacrifice then um you know what's what's Jesus going to inherit from Joseph like thanks pops but uh <laughs> i got this other stuff coming too <laughs> uh,
0: it, it is it
1: is a strange lacuna in the Gospels, of course, too, what happens to Joseph. He just drops off the face of the scene. So if Paul wanted to appeal to that as a model of adoption, he could have, but he doesn't. And I think you've given reasons as to why he might not have. Uh, I do want to talk about your, you give a translation of these adoption texts. Um, it's the new, uh, new Aaron's international translation <laughs> and I just want to quote the part that I thought was uh, interesting where you are kind of given a like if I could say how it should be said so that we could all understand it today uh, you you explained the f- uh, sp- the phrase, um, uh, the use of adoption in this long phrase quote, in, <laughs> in terms which are seen to be suggestive of adoption can you explain that translation?
0: Sure, I mean that's me picking up Saskis' language just to be, you know, to put put the text in, uh, in terms of her definition of metaphor. So we all kind of know what we're talking about. I think it's important to work with clear definitions. And I found hers to be very clear and precise. So it's not, um, it's not that I think that somehow they are not suggestive of adoption, or you could say it any other way, but just to identify that that's the vehicle in in question that we're talking about. And then uh, what I think that points us to is all of the related terms in the surrounding context. So adoption and inheritance and sonship, and um, I think even the reception of the Spirit fits into with that with Paul. So uh, the suggestive of um, adoption, I think, is just a point to the metaphor and then how it's functioning in the wider context. Hmm. Um, I wasn't trying to be, I guess. Uh, intentionally vague or or academic in that I just wanted to use her her definition because I think it's so clear and precise
1: no I, I, I've done the same thing sometimes too just like if I could say this it's, it's much longer but this is what I think they're getting at I think I think it was actually helpful um, the book is great I, I have to say to listeners this is a monograph which means that it's a, a book Primarily written for other researchers and graduate students, it's a it's a it's a nerd book, uh, but it, it is very well written, and I, I actually think any educated layperson in the church could read it and benefit from it. So it's not just for geeks, um, although <laughs> geeks will especially appreciate it. Um, be, before we go, because uh, I'm mindful of the time, I, I do want to ask you: uh, you're adopted, uh, and so you've probably thought about this. Uh, what do you see any implications from your from your work for? People who are contemplating adoption, people who have been adopted, who, who adopted, who are reflecting on it, people um, like me who have adopted, and we always look back and we have lots of mixed thoughts about um,
0: mm. even
1: adopting our own children. We, I mean, we're, we we love it and it, it was all good, <laughs> but but there is a very strange relationship between adoptive parents, mm. and we know about the the mother and the father, and we pray for them regularly, and mm. so uh, it's a complex uh, topography. There's nothing simple about it. Uh, yeah. But do you do you believe this has any import for the way we think about this today? <laughs> mm-hmm
0: that's a wonderful question I really appreciate you asking it um, like I said the impetus to research this was because of my own story with adoption and I just want to say first that I had a wonderful experience with um, with being adopted I have a wonderful relationship with my parents um, I don't have contact with my biological family because I was adopted in the 80s where close adoption was still practiced so I don't have access to those records um, readily and easily and um, because of my own life choices of living overseas for a time, et cetera, I just haven't um, had time or, um, quite frankly, the emotional fortitude to pursue that because it's so complicated. Um, we see these texts get used in evangelical, I think, especially discourse on adoption, which is my world, um, which gives me a little bit of concern, to be honest. Uh, I think when we read Romans eight, um, Galatians four, we need to recognize that Paul is talking about a practice that's very different than um, than our contemporary practice of adoption of children, and so I think it should give us a great pause before we start mapping this narrative onto the adoption of children. To my mind, it doesn't fit very well, and. Um, I actually had to wrestle with that question because uh, a friend of mine asked me to write a shorter uh, article in a book on reading this text along with the experience of adoption, of, of motherhood, and, and adoption, which was a very uh, difficult essay to write because it forced me, as a mother who has two kids of uh, biological kids um, that we're raising, and um, went through the experience of pregnancy and um, and childbirth and then uh, the early years of parenting in the same time I'm writing this book, it was very clear to me how different adoption is from the um, normal human biological process of bringing children into families. Mm. And so what I'd want to say is we can have a conversation about the theological implications of these texts for how we think about Christian family, et cetera. But, um, but it's got to start with recognizing the complexity of adoption in our contemporary culture. And I think if we read Romans 8, you know, we're, we we receive the spirit of adoption, but yet we're still, you know, groaning as if in the pains of childbirth, or eagerly waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And I think if you're an adopted person, you have both of those experiences. You're adopted on the one hand, but like, there's no point in time where you're not groaning In your adoption, it's not you just you can't get away from it. So there's there's belonging, and then there's also displacement that happens. And Mm -hmm. I think we see the same thing in Paul. I think that's maybe the best connection I can make. That adoption is about belonging, and at some stage it's about displacement. And we live in the tension between those those two things. So um, so it's a question I continue to think about it. I really resist kind of thinking about adoption as a Cinderella story because adopted persons are, I mean, adoptions born of some kind of trauma. And I think it's important for, um, adopted persons and adopted families, especially to be given the space to, uh, to wrestle and to groan and to grieve, uh, the hurt that comes with adoption. And then also to rejoice in the, in the gift of belonging that, that comes from being in families. Mm,
1: That's really good. It's good to hear. Um, I, I wonder just for our listeners, could, could you tell us where that article is because I think lots of people will be interested. Sure.
0: Yeah, it's in a book called Making Sense of Motherhood post, uh, published by Wippenstock. Uh, and, and yeah it's it's a, a one article among many, many good ones in that book, so I'd highly recommend it. It's a, a real mix of authors and real <laughs> mix of experiences of motherhood. That's great. Okay, well,
1: I know that you listen to our show. Uh, so I know that you know the last question coming here, so hopefully you prepared. I'll, I'll shake it up no. a little bit. Um, we we always ask everybody on our show, what what is the one idea or school of thought, we don't name persons necessarily, uh, but that you wish would go the way of the dodo bird? Um, and I'll give you the flip side, too. It would be good to hear uh, what, what's been... Um, a seminal work in your thinking, one that may, maybe not even one that you tell everybody to read, but one that really sh- shaped you uh, as a scholar. Mm.
0: Yeah, um, boy, I think um, I think the one school of thought that I I sort of wish would go the the way of the the dodo bird is the school of thought that treats. Um, that treats language as if it's building blocks, uh, which was honestly the, the way that I was trained a little bit to, to, uh, to look at language, like it's some mystical collection of, of words that we can build up to, to find meaning. And I think, um, I think language is mystical in some ways, but I really wish that people were more interested in reading. Um, let, I, I, I wish we'd read more holistically and less atomistically mm-hmm. in biblical studies, especially, um, so, which is interesting because I'm also writing it, <laughs> entries for a dictionary. So, <laughs> um, inner
1: conflicts of a scholar.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, the the uh, The books that have most influenced me are are ones that I I really gravitate toward good writing and. In my mind, there are no two finer writers in biblical studies than Richard Hayes and John Barclay, and for different reasons, I think. But uh, Richard Hayes and his narrative approach to scripture, and just the uh, the care and attention that he takes when um, reading. Um, what, it's just, I think, something that should be emulated. And similarly with John Barclay's work. And I know we're not supposed to name names, I'm sorry, but <laughs> I really do appreciate those two have, have had the most um, profound influence on me. Just in terms of um, John Barclay's care with the um, with the, the literature of the period of time that he's working with, and then the clarity of his argument and writing, I think are just uh, two two things that I tell my students to model uh, in their own reading. Hmm. Uh,
1: you can mention names as long as they're not the ones that you wish would die or go the way of the oh dead I over. see yeah okay, um, okay. <laughs> no no cursing people to shithole here um, no, okay. <laughs> since you mentioned Richard Hayes why well, I've got you on the hook one last question uh, you do have a little jab at intertextuality in the book and uh, that you think intertextuality can sometimes be done if if I can say naively uh, so maybe you can leave us with a parting thought on what you think is a good model of intertextuality and what what should, you know, maybe there's some grad students or people who are running into this for the first time, what should they hmm. w- look out for? What be signals that something's gone wrong in intertextual studies?
0: Well, I think one of the things that I, I appreciate about Richard Hayes' work is that he's really trying to enter the symbolic universe of the text when he's doing intertextuality. So he's um, he's asking the question of not just, you know, what, um, what quotation is a New Testament author using, but just... How do they see that fitting within the larger narrative framework of the work? And I think we have to do that when we do intertextuality. We have to ask the question, how does the author see this fitting within the larger picture and um, or the larger picture of the um, precursor text fitting within the the, um, the text the receiving text that it's that's located in because every time you transpose something, uh, I think you end up with this sort of interesting, uh, collision of implications that don't really exist in the, you know, first text and wouldn't exist in the second text, but actually inter- in, in this space between them, uh, that I think transfigures the meaning of both things in some sense if we let it. And so, I just want people to s- kind of stick with the, <laughs> stick with the text a little bit longer when they're doing intertextuality and not be uh, quite so concerned with. Uh, maybe source hunting and tracing. I mean, That's important work, but I don't think it can stop there. It's a little bit like looking at your finger when you're pointing at the moon. Hmm. Well, on that
1: note, uh, we're going to end this conversation with Dr. Aaron Haim today. We thank you so much for uh, giving us some time for the interview. It's a fantastic book, and I hope you run to Amazon um, through the OnScript webpage, of course, and Absolutely. order the book quickly. Thank you,
0: Dr. Haim. Thank you so much.